Now we'll uh, turn to the book that we're uh, looking at with God's help. That's the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. And reading in chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. where Moses and Aaron are coming back into Pharaoh's presence for the second time. The first time, you remember, led to the burdens of God's people increasing, so things got worse before they got better. But the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was eighty years old, and Aaron eighty-three years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Especially in verse 12 there, when every man threw down his rod and they became serpents, we read that Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now, uh, with the Lord's help, we began uh, to look at these plagues or these strikes or blows which is what the Hebrew word actually conveys. We began looking at them last week. And uh, we saw the purpose of them, which was, of course, to bring uh, God's judgment upon Egypt. And um, perhaps I didn't stress enough that the judgment upon Egypt was threefold. The Bible itself emphasizes that it was a judgment upon Egypt itself, It was also a judgment upon Egypt's gods. Now that may be rather difficult for now to understand, but it's what we're coming to. 
a judgment on Egypt's gods, and then it was also a judgment upon Pharaoh himself as the king of Egypt. And uh, last week we considered the plagues as a judgment upon Egypt itself, as a nation and a people. And of course the judgment fell upon the nation because of their sin. And their sin had particularly ripened into this elaborate system of idolatry. Along with that you'll remember that they rejected the gospel which God had graciously brought into that dark land. Since Jacob's migration there, along with all the family of God, Israel, Egypt was blessed with gospel light, but they chose to reject that light for nearly 400 years. And what's more, they had turned the blessing God gave them to evil use, and they began to persecute the people of God, severely so. We saw several weeks ago how the persecution grew and became genocide at various points. These things provoke God's wrath, and therefore the plagues are sent upon the nation. Now, we notice several things about the plagues generally. For example, that they were ten in number, which reminds us that they were a perfect judgment from God, uh, just and holy, no injustice connected with them. We also saw the general character of the plagues, that they increased in severity and that they also had mercy mingled with them. So even as they proceeded, there was plenty opportunity for repentance. But I want to look with you this morning especially at the nature of the plagues, the kind of afflictions they are, the particular form that these strikes take, why they take that kind of form, why the frogs, why the lice, why the flies, why the hail, why the darkness and the death of the firstborn. And that really takes us to the second aspect of the judgments. Not only are they on Egypt as a nation, they are also on Egypt's gods and on Egypt's king, Pharaoh. So especially this morning, a judgment on Egypt's gods. Now that may seem a strange expression and hard to understand, but it's said more than once in the Bible. If you just turn forward a couple of pages actually to chapter 12, um, when the last plague is announced, in chapter 12 and in verse 12, God says that I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So the plagues are a judgment on Egypt's gods. Now that of course raises a question, a very important question, who or what are these gods? And I suppose a question that's bound up with that, are these gods real? 
And of course, if they aren't real, in what sense can they be judged? Let's begin with who these gods actually are. Now, the Egyptian system of idolatry was really very complicated and intricate. They had a, an enormous pantheon of gods and goddesses. Some of them, their names we know, like Horus, Osiris, and Seth, and so on. Like I said, literally thousands of gods. Some would rise in prominence at various times, and they would fall away and perhaps become replaced with others. The best known was the chief deity, or the chief god, Amun Ra, the sun god. Pharaoh, the R-A in Pharaoh, reminds us that he was the son of the sun god and the great representative of that sun god upon the earth. So Pharaoh himself is bound up very much in the system of idolatry. Now, like every idolatry, its roots lie in the human heart. The reason for that is because we were made uh, both to know and to worship God. There was some discussion a few years back, I haven't heard much about it recently, but a discussion as to whether there was a religious gene in people that made them predisposed towards religion. Well, there's a truth in that, but it's, it's not the whole truth. It's far from it. That's a materialistic way of explaining everything that's connected with it. But the fact of the matter is that there is something within us that knows and recognizes God and also needs to worship that God. Now, of course, we're all aware that with the fall, there was a, a conscious rejection of that God and uh, Ever since then, we hold the truth, or we suppress it, as Paul says, in our unrighteousness. So, we knew God, Paul says, but we were not thankful. Uh, we did, acknowledge, did not acknowledge him as our God, and in our reasonings, we became corrupt, and our hearts were darkened, and we turned from the worship of the Creator to the worship of the creature. What that is effectively telling us is that our religious nature remains. But instead of knowing and worshipping God, instead we gravitate towards the creature and we somehow worship the creature. We transfer, in other words, the awe and the worship that belongs to God. We transfer it from him onto something that he has made, from the creator to the creature. Now, the creature, sadly, that we all worship most of all, is our self. The worship of self. But at the same time, the very consciousness that we have of our own smallness, in some sense, compared to the world and the vast cosmos in which we live, means that, that we want. We want to have this awe for something. Like I said, it's, it's in the heart. And what that usually leads to is some kind of awe towards nature and her processes, which through time are personified, so that the various forces of nature um, 
are put into a concrete form in the form of an idol. Something that people can relate to and recognize. So rather than worshipping the sun simply, that sun will become incarnate. There will be an image of it, a fantastic image of one kind or another. The power of reproduction is something that people are in awe at, how a species reproduces itself. And therefore, a god will be made that is perhaps in the form, as amongst the Egyptians, in the form of a frog, because of the frog's powers of reproduction. So their deity representing reproduction would be a person with the head of a frog. That would be the god of reproduction. So idolatry is a complex thing. It's never just a matter of of making a stone or a piece of wood and saying, well, that created the world. It's, It's never as stupid as that, if you just pardon the expression. Some people's conception of idolatry and understanding of idolatry is very crude uh, and uh, superficial. There's far more to it than meets the eye. And so what you really have is, in advanced forms of idolatry, you have a blend of naturalism and religion. A worship of nature, basically. That is, well, nature that's given a kind of a religious appearance in one way or another because we have to have that. Because as I said at the beginning, we are made to worship and to recognise something higher than ourselves. And that's why you will find websites even today set up by people who are committed materialistic evolutionists who encourage you to be in awe of nature, to spend some time in silence acknowledging the vastness and the awesomeness of nature. That, friends, is idolatry, because it is transferring the time of prayer and adoration that you should give to the Creator, it is transferring it to the creature. That's why, as I mentioned last week, that the practice began of writing the word cosmos with a capital C. I think it was Carl Sagan who began that, but very often people do it. They write cosmos with a capital C. Uh, why? The environment begins also to assume the importance that you would normally attach to the deity. People are so jealous for the environment, as, as though it was um, godlike, Mother Earth, Gaia. All these things, they go together. And nature programs are increasingly presented as though they are almost semi-religious, and it's the hushed and quiet tones of David Attenborough that are always preferred, because they're almost priest-like in the way that they present the awesomeness of the material world from which we came, something to, to admire something to be held in awe. So the gods are either in Egypt and elsewhere, they are either nature personified or else spirit forces that they come to think of as being behind nature. And Egypt, like I said, had hundreds of them. Are these gods real? If they think there is a spirit force behind 
reproduction, a spirit force behind light, a spirit force behind darkness, a spirit force behind the animals. Are these gods real? Well, I don't want to give a, a politician's answer to this, but the answer to that is yes and no. Yes and no. The obvious answer is no, these gods are not real. What I mean by that is what the Bible would say to that. There is no Egyptian Amun or Ra or Osiris or Set or Horus. They don't exist. The Roman Jupiter or Mars or Venus, they don't exist. The Greek Zeus or Apollo, they don't exist. The Norse Odin or Thor, they don't exist. As Paul says, an idol is nothing in the world. We know that there is only one God, one Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all there is to it. If that's all there was to it, Paul would have said, well, on you go to these feasts and festivals and uh, an, an idol is nothing in the world. You can ignore idolatry wherever it takes place. But no, he says, it's not as simple as that. When these Gentiles honour their idols and when they sacrifice to these idols, he says they are actually sacrificing to demons. To demons. Now what the Apostle is really saying there is this, that the idol's shrine on which you may see a statue, say, say a statue with a frog's head or something reprint, um, symbolizing the forces of reproduction. <coughs> Just because that idol uh, has no real existence doesn't mean that that shrine is empty. There are powers and principalities, he says, at work in the world which make sure that that shrine is not empty. The God of this world and the powers and the principalities that are under his sway are always at work wherever idolatry is to make sure that the mind is blinded and darkened and more and more attached to the forces and powers of nature, including, of course, self. And very often, these idolatrous powers seem to find their way into sexual immorality, which was often the case in Babylon, in Egypt, and in elsewhere too. And some of their idolatrous temples had ritual prostitutes because this idea of nature replicating herself was the most awesome thing in connection with nature. The, the power to replicate, to renew. Who's behind that? The God of this world, who blinds the minds of those who already do not believe, lest they should embrace the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the conflict in Egypt here is not a conflict between God and a group of non-entities. It's not a conflict between God and idols that have no real existence. It is actually a conflict between God and the kingdom of darkness. And it's in that light that we need to understand the first confrontation between Moses and the magicians of Egypt. Now, these magicians of Egypt were, like the Magi in Babylon, they were a powerful priestly class, very well educated, very politically shrewd, and, of course, very able to perform wonders too. 
Paul tells us the name of the, the names of the two leading magicians, Janes and Jambres. He tells us that they withstood Moses and Aaron. Of course, the powers of darkness always withstand the power of light. Whenever light comes, darkness will also come. There is no doubt about that. So these magicians, Janes and Jambres, and the people who are with them, are not simple tricksters. They're not just illusionists. They are people who are themselves in the grip of the powers of darkness, to some extent themselves possessed by the power of evil, by the powers of evil. Because, of course, as most of you know, the line between magic and darkness has always been very, very fine. And people who have become very involved in magic, sometimes just performing um, tricks of illusion, first of all, seem to slip quite easily into a darker and murkier area, murkier area like Ouija boards and seances and things of this kind. Now, of course, I'm conscious that the question has often been raised, you know, what, you see, these magicians, they replicated what Moses and Aaron did. They replicated the original sign of turning the rods into serpents. They replicated the first uh, two miracles. When it came to the lice, they couldn't replicate the proliferation of lice, and neither could they replicate any of the remaining miracles. But they did replicate the first two. As well as the sign of rods into serpents, um, they also turned water into blood, and they were able to multiply the frogs. Is that trickery? Or is it demonic? Some people will say to you that the devil does not possess the power of miracle. Now I think that that's um, to some extent a kind of philosophical point of view to take. There's certainly plenty examples, clear examples in the Old Testament of the devil performing something that is akin to miracle anyway. For example, one of the one of the best known would be in the case of Job, uh, when the devil asked permission, of course, to assault uh, Job's substance and his family, and of course then his body too. Uh, so there are a whole host of powers of nature at his disposal there. He organises the wind which breaks down the house in which Job's family were living. He is able to move the Sabaean raiders to come and to take away the possessions. And he, of course, is able somehow to originate the boils that break out on Job's body from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. Now, however technically you want to define a miracle, there is no point, there is no denying that the powers of nature there are at his disposal. Now, God puts them at their disposal, and I'll grant you that. There is nothing that Satan can perform, as it were, by his own power. He's not able to perform a miracle on his own authority. But nonetheless, in those days certainly, prior to the cross, I wouldn't say after the cross, but prior to the cross, there is a power to perform miracle. And that I would say to you is what is happening here in Egypt. So that what they do, these magicians, is not slate of hand. It's not an illusion, but it's real. 
and it's done by the powers of darkness. Now, I have a few reasons for coming to that conclusion. The first of these lies in something that I mentioned last week, something that we just carry in our minds as we work our way through the Exodus here, that the Exodus is a type, of course, of the redemption that Christ purchased for us. Always keep that in the back of our minds. And of course, on the cross and in the redemption of Christ, there was a conflict between Christ and principalities and powers. We're well aware of that. Um, That was a real conflict. Psalm 22 very graphically describes for us how the powers of hell were arraigned against the Lord Jesus Christ under the figure of the dogs, the bulls of Bashan, and the roaring lion. These things tell us that evil was closing in on Christ, that the devil himself and all his artillery was being used to get him to deflect from the path, to even think in his heart an unbecoming or sinful thought against God, or even more, just to deflect from the path of duty. And like I said, I don't think any weapon in Satan's artillery was spared. That all his energy was focused on that part of space and at that point in time. What's the point of being bothered with somebody who is away in Sweden or Norway when this man is on the cross? It's all hands on deck and nothing spared. And of course the duty of the Lord was to defeat these principalities and powers. Of course this primary objective is to do away with sin, to pay the debt, and to reconcile us to God. But that involves a defeat of Satan, a taking away of the powers of these principalities and powers, so that they are not able to hold the people of God in bondage anymore. So it is a conflict between light and darkness. It's a conflict between good and evil. It is a conflict between the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil and all his powers and principalities. That's why if you go back to the communion, when I was speaking about um, the death of Christ, you remember that Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain to speak to Christ about the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. There's a, a connection here, a clear connection between this conflict and the conflict that took place when Christ slew principalities and powers so you've got a demonic presence here when the darkness falls upon Egypt a darkness fell upon the cross the firstborn were slain God's firstborn was slain on the cross but so on this is a conflict between God and the powers of darkness The second reason for saying that is because of the inability of the magicians to produce lies. Now, if a magician can turn water to blood, and if he can make frogs appear from nowhere, then what's the problem with lies? Some of you will have watched magicians at work. Down through the years, people have been enchanted, if you forgive the use of that word, but enchanted by them. 
David Copperfield and Paul Daniels and now Dino and people like that. And, and you watch what they're able to do, how they're able to make things disappear and able to make things appear. And you wonder, well, how on earth can that be done? Well, that ability has always been there. I mean, a conjurer can be a very clever person. Slate of hand can do amazing things. It's not difficult to give the appearance of turning water into blood, and neither is it difficult to make a frog appear, just as you can take a rabbit out of a hat. A clever magician has always been able to do that. But why couldn't they produce the lice then? I mean, if you were to ask me, I know nothing about these things, but I would say it was far easier to give the illusion of lice multiplying than frogs. Why is it so difficult? Well, it's so difficult because they were not illusions. They were actually things that were done by the power of darkness. But for some reason, that power deserted them when it came to the third plague. When I'm saying for some reason that power deserted them, we know exactly why the power deserted them, because God said, that's enough of that. He allowed the first two uh, counterfeit miracles, or devilish miracles, but he didn't allow any more. That is God essentially saying that um, he is in control. And any power that they have had as magicians, and any power that they've exercised, devilish satanic power, it's in God's control. This far, I will allow it to go, and I will allow it to go no further. Now at one level sometimes, it's a mystery for us why God permits evil. Of course it is. It's always been a question. It's always been a quest to find a theodicy, uh, an explanation for the origin and existence of evil. But leave that to the side. The important thing that we need to remember in connection with it is that it is limited. That it is under the control of God. And the devil can do nothing without God's permission. And he will bind it and restrain it in a way that works not only to his own glory but to the well-being of his own people. Mysterious as that is, you would think the devil can only harm you, and in one way he can, but in another way he must do you good. All the, all the spirits are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to the ears of salvation. It would be an audacious thing to say that the evil spirits were included in that, but there's a sense in which they are. Their intention is to harm, to destroy, and to kill. But God's intention is to use. To use. And so Satan is only permitted in your life, as God sees it, for somehow your welfare and the welfare of others too. So the inability of the magicians to produce lies is telling us that the power they're using is not illusion. If it was, they could do lies. It is actually a real presence of evil. The third reason for believing it's genuine evil is this, that they can't reverse the plagues. Notice that they did turn water into blood. They were also able to produce frogs, but they didn't reverse these two plagues. It was Moses' intervention that reversed the plagues. The water was only turned back into water when God said so, and the frogs were only taken away when God said so. That's a reminder to us that the devil can only do evil and harm 
he cannot do good. Um, he cannot do good. That's the argument that our Lord used when he was casting evil spirits out. And of course the Jews came to him and said, we don't like this. You, you, are, you are actually casting out evil spirits by the power of Beelzebub himself, the Lord of the flies. It, it's his power. It is the power of darkness that you are using in casting out evil spirits. Of course you remember the Lord's response to that. He says, any kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If, if Satan is casting out Satan, if he's destroying his own work, how will his kingdom stand? That's the argument that the Lord uses. Satan can't do a good work. Satan can't cast out an evil spirit. He, he, he can't um, do himself harm in that kind of way. There's another way which he always does, of course, but not in this way. To, to cast out an evil spirit is a good work, and therefore it is not done by Satan. Another reason for seeing it as the powers of evil is actually the confession of the magicians themselves. If, if you look at chapter 8 and verse 19, the magicians are watching Moses and Aaron at work. In verse 18, we're told that the magicians worked with their enchantments to bring forth lies, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. There are times when people who are quite sold into evil recognize that in the presence of good. We saw that in connection with the demon in Capernaum and other demons too during the ministry of Christ. That they knew that, that they were confronting something that was completely different to anyone else that was in the world. The, the Holy One, the Son of God. They were so sensitive in that kind of way. They, they knew perfect holiness when they saw it. Now here the magician said, there's something about this contest, they said, that's different. They were used to enchantments Perhaps they would try to outdo each other in enchantments. But Moses was different, Aaron was different, and what was happening in front of them was very different. And they just backed off and said, this is the finger of God. The finger of God. That's an expression that Jesus himself used. Again, in the same context, when the Pharisees were saying to him that the power he was using was a demonic power, well, he said to them, if, if this is a demonic power, well, Satan is divided against himself, and how can his kingdom stand? But he says, if I, with the finger of God, am casting out these spirits, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I think the finger of God there is just a reference to his own finger. It's, it's more than likely when he performed these miracles and when he told these demons to depart that he pointed in that direction. I command you in the name of God that you depart. Or by my own authority, I should say, our Lord's authority was his own. It may have been performed in the power of the Spirit, but the authority was always his own. I command you to depart. And he would point the finger, which meant that 
It was the finger of God, his finger, and it was the kingdom of God which he was representing, or he was ruling over as king. Now that again ties these two events and contexts together. Christ coming up against the principalities and powers, Moses and Aaron, thousands of years before, coming up against these principalities and powers. So this is a genuine confrontation between God and the powers of evil. Now there are times when um, such confrontations came to a height, and, and this is one of them. And God would especially allow that to happen when these things were types of what was actually to come. Times when the devil was let loose. The devil has come down to you having great wrath. Woe to you, earth and sea. This is when the devil was cast out of heaven. Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, for he knows that his time is short. And whenever the devil feels that there is a particular work about to happen, he intensifies his efforts. Now, that's demonstrable in history. It's demonstrable probably in your own personal experience or family experience. It's demonstrable in the history of churches and congregations. When good is about to happen, evil intensifies. We have that in Revelation 12, when the woman was about to give birth to the child, the dragon drew near to the woman to wait for the birth of the child, to devour the child as soon as the child was born. That's what we're told. That's what was happening when Herod organised the killing of every single child under two years of age in Bethlehem. It's an attempt to kill the Lord's anointed before the Lord's anointed can do his good work. Now this is the same thing here. The devil knows his Bible. We know that very well from the New Testament. We know how well he knew the Psalms, for example. And how he knew that the Psalms applied to Christ. We know that. He used the Psalms against Jesus in a very clever, a very, very clever way. Now the devil knows that God had said to Abraham that his seed would be in bondage to a foreign power for four generations. A space of 400 years. And then he says, I will bring them out. Now that's in Genesis 12. That's going back... Um, well over 500 years before these events take place here. Now the devil knows that. The devil knows who Moses is. The devil knows about the burning bush. The devil knows about the commission. He knows the mission in Egypt. He knows it. And to him that's a loss. He, he wants no bright periods in the church's life. He wants no bright periods in your life. Nothing. And even, even if a, a defeat at some point is inevitable, he wants to die in the act of doing as much damage as possible. Why? Because that's what hatred does. That's the way hatred works. Hatred wants to destroy anything that's connected with the object of hatred. So if he senses that the people of God are to get liberty, that they're coming out of Egypt, that they're going to go into the promised land, that they're going to prosper there, that the gospel is going to be proclaimed, that he wants to mar that, to hinder it, to stop it, just, just to damage it even, just to damage it. Because if you damage somebody, 
maybe you can destroy somebody else. Is that not the way it works? Even if you can't stop the salvation of a particular Christian, maybe you can so damage their life that somebody else is damaged by it. Somebody else's soul is destroyed by it. That's why it's never a waste of time. You may say to yourself, well, it's a waste of time to attack Christ, not a waste of time to attack Christ. Even if Christ succeeds, who knows who else I can bring down? Even if I don't destroy Job, maybe I can destroy everyone else on the face of the earth just because I've damaged Job. And so he's very conscious, the devil, of what is happening here. And there's no doubt he's been at work in making Egypt what it is, which is a nation full of idolatry. Full of idolatry. And all these things, the fact that it's a real conflict between God and the powers of darkness, help us to understand the nature of the plagues. God has so organized the plagues that they constitute a direct challenge to the gods of Egypt, to the powers of nature that they worshipped and how they worshipped them. The function of these gods, thousands of them, was to maintain the order and the balance of nature, which they were in awe of. The Egyptians couldn't believe how the Nile, which was after the sun god, it was their second deity, the Nile itself was invested with um, divine powers, how it inundated the land, made it fertile, got, um, their gods had blessed them. Nature was finely balanced. And all these gods work together uh, to bring balance in the environment, balance in creation, a wonderful balance. And what God effectively does is he just disrupts that completely and utterly. He disrupts it. He, he reduces their order to chaos. Is the Nile the source of everything? Well, he just turns it into blood, blood red, makes it undrinkable, perhaps even poisonous, certainly undrinkable. They're digging around it, trying to, trying to filter enough water to have. Reproduction, God let it go out of control in the frog. They, they weren't allowed to kill frogs because the frog represented the god of reproduction. So it's a bit like the sacred cow in, in India. You can't touch a cow. Well, you couldn't touch a frog. And God says, well, have millions of the things. You can't touch them. Um, the god of reproduction was supposed to keep these things in control. Supposed to keep the frog population under control because from time to time they could be a problem. Well, they were a problem now. They were a problem now. The fly or the scarab beetle, which most people think is what's referred to there, which they worshipped again because it symbolised for them the scarab beetle would, would roll... Um, some dung into the earth and, and another scarab beetle would appear. It seemed to kind of come from nowhere. So, so the power of rebirth was associated with the beetle. God says, well, here you are, have them, until they destroy you. And, and God is breaking down the cosmos for them. That's what he's doing. He's breaking it down. Starts in the earth, moves to the land, moves to the sky, and eventually he darkens Amun Re, the sun god himself. For three days there's a thick darkness so they can't even see in front of their noses. Everything comes to a halt. These are strikes. These are plagues. And they are from the hand of God. What are they teaching? Well, 
They're certainly teaching the greatness of God. There are so many texts in Exodus which tell us that God is showing his power in these things. He made everything. He controls everything. And even if someone had said, oh look, the reason nature is breaking down here is because we've upset our gods. Moses covers for that because he says to Pharaoh, you tell me, he says, at what time? When Pharaoh says, I'm sorry, um, take these frogs away, Moses says, you tell me when these frogs are going to go. Moses, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Moses says, very well then. In other words, <laughs> um, it's not your gods that have been upset. These come and go at his command and will. At his command and will. Don't intercede to your gods to reverse the destruction of the order into chaos. My God has brought the chaos and he alone can take it away. So he arranges the timing of these things. Of course, these plagues also remind us of the true nature of creation. It is a creation. It's created by God, subject to him. And the creation even now is subject to vanity. It's under a curse. It should never be worshipped, of course. Like a vesture, we're told one day it will be folded up. The earth is not God. Gaia is not God. Nature is not God. The cosmos is not God. Transfer your awe from the created thing to the creator himself. I remember when I was much younger when uh, computers began to be a thing and I remember people uh, discussing them at all, just, just in use to where I come from. I remember there was a, a couple of people were discussing them and somebody said, well, isn't the computer an amazing thing? And the other person in the house said, well, isn't the man who made the computer a far more amazing thing? And another person in the room said, well, isn't the one who made the man an even far more amazing person? And of course that's right. Any all that stops short of God is idolatry. Any all that stops short of God is idolatry. And there is so much idolatry. We know idolatry takes different forms. Covetousness is idolatry. We know that. You can make an idol of your family. We know that. You can make an idol of yourself. You know that. But there's a lot of just pagan idolatry seeping more and more into the world in which we live. Nature is being worshipped and God completely forgotten about. And again, these plagues reveal the power of God, the nature of creation, and they also remind us of the defeat of the powers of evil. Let me close with this, because that's really what you see in this introductory skirmish, can we call it, between Moses and Aaron on the one hand, and the magicians on the other. There's this initial conflict that before the plagues come, with the rods and the serpents. The magicians are able to uh, turn the rods into serpents when they cast them to the ground. Now, when Aaron did that, the serpent, of course, um, was itself worshipped in Egypt. Uh, it was bound up with Pharaoh. There was, you'll remember there was a serpent on his headdress. There was a serpent on top of his uh, scepter um, because of the connection with himself and the sun god. 
Aaron is effectively taking the symbol of Pharaoh's power and he's throwing it to the ground. He throws the rod to the ground, it becomes a serpent, and he picks it up by the tail, which is the sign that he was supposed to do. That's a way of saying to Pharaoh, um, you're not in control here. When they pick the serpent up by the tail, they're effectively saying, God is in control. Now, of course, the magicians were able to do the same thing. But we're told that Aaron's rod swallowed their rods. That's before any plague comes. Aaron's rod swallows theirs. What's, what is it that's happening here? Well, surely that's just a way of communicating to them and communicating to us that there's only one winner in this conflict between good and evil and light and darkness. It's good to know that at the cross of Calvary, the power of evil was defeated. It's still real and it's present, but it is actually a defeated power. And if you know the Lord, then it's true that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And you know too that if you put on the armour that God has given you to put on every day in Ephesians 6, in your conflict against powers and principalities, because you're not warring against flesh and blood, it doesn't matter who's giving you a problem in life, your warfare is not with flesh and blood. It's always with powers and with principalities. But if you put on that warfare, that that armour that God has given you to wear. The victory is yours and the defeat is his. That's why God said to the, the apostle, said to the church in Rome, that God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. You may feel just now that Satan has the ascendancy, but he says God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And Putting on the whole armour of God and especially prayer is the key towards that. So don't be in bondage to evil. Don't be in bondage to sin, to repetitive sin, habitual sin. Don't be in bondage to anything that is devilish. The victory is yours in Christ Jesus. The gods are defeated. Satan is a defeated foe. Next time, God willing, will think of the plagues as being against Pharaoh, the man who famously hardened his heart before the Lord. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, we are often in fear at the darkness that can cover this earth. And how perilous seasons come in which the devil is let loose for a time. And we are very conscious that we are living in such a day in the Western world when men have become lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, unthankful, despisers of what is good, disobedient to parents, unholy covenant breakers. And we pray in a day of great evil, when it has come in like a flood, that you would lift up a standard against him, and that we would raise up that standard too, through our life and witness, and through the proclamation of the word, that we would proclaim the greater power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to deliver us from sin and from death and from hell itself. Bless our meditation upon 
your precious word. In Christ's name, Amen. Now let's uh, close our worship uh, singing God's praise again in Psalm 76 this time. Psalm 76. God is intervening when there's war against himself and against his cause. In verse 3, he breaks the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the war. And in verse 6, we read, sorry, in verse 7, Thou, Lord, even thou art he that should be feared. And who is he that may stand up before thy sight if once thou angry be? When God intervenes, he has the last word. From heaven, Though judgment caused be heard, and the effect, the earth was still with fear when God to judgment rose to save all meek on earth that were. And we should never forget that these plagues are instrumental in the deliverance of his own people. Surely the very wrath of man unto thy praise redounds. It doesn't matter how angry people get, it will always redound to God's praise eventually. And thou to the remnant of his wrath will set restraining bounds. Seven to ten, let's stand and sing.